Good evening, church. This evening's scripture will come from Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 42. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 42. And it reads, And he came out and went as he walked to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about the stones cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. I have read to you Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 42. May the Lord bless the hearers, readers, and doers of thy word. We appreciate Jordan reading our scripture tonight. We're grateful for him and all of our young people. We're grateful for our young men who read scripture on a weekly basis. Tonight we are looking at Luke chapter 22 as we think about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course Jesus here is praying, as you well know, in the shadow of the cross. And so I want us to think for a few moments about this passage of scripture. We began the year talking about making this a year of prayer emphasizing prayer in the lives of those of us who belong to the family of God and prayer is a great thing it's a tremendous privilege we want to take every opportunity that we have to pray to God and we're so grateful for all the spiritual blessings that we enjoy in Christ sometimes we possibly forget the tremendous blessings that we enjoy in Christ and so one of the things that I want to do hopefully throughout this year is talk about from time to time, some of the prayers of Jesus. And tonight we think about Jesus as he prays in the shadow of the cross. And so as we pick up in Luke chapter 22, I want to begin our study by first and foremost talking about the fact that Jesus was committed to prayer. Listen, if you would, to what is said in verse 39. And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So as we think about Jesus being committed to prayer, I want to suggest that Jesus was committed to the practice of prayer. And We might ask this question tonight, are you committed to prayer? Are you committed to practicing a prayerful life on a regular basis? When you begin looking at the life of Jesus, you'll see that he exemplified a prayerful life. In Mark chapter 1, the Bible tells us that on one occasion, Jesus rose early in the morning and went out to a solitary place, and there the Bible says he prayed. Do you remember in Luke chapter 5 when Luke tells us that on one occasion Jesus withdrew himself for the purpose of praying to the Father. In Luke chapter 6, before Jesus selected the men who would function as his ambassadors, his apostles, Luke said he spent the night in prayer to the Father. Prayer was a vital part of the life of Jesus. Over and over again, you'll see Jesus praying. In John chapter 17, 
Again, in the shadow of the cross, Jesus is praying for those who would be his disciples, those who would wear his name. And then as we said in the Garden of Gethsemane, we find Jesus praying. Not only did Jesus exemplify a life of prayer, but he encouraged a life of prayer. Think about how often Jesus encouraged people to pray. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, Luke said that Jesus taught that men ought to always pray and not faint or not become discouraged. Jesus understood the tremendous privilege and power of prayer. And I think that we also ought to understand, understand the tremendous spiritual blessing that has been bestowed on us. You remember the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. So to think that there is a God in heaven who created the universe who is willing to listen attentively to our prayers. So Jesus was a man of prayer. He was committed to a life of prayer. And I would hope and pray that we are committed to a life of prayer. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see in this, in this point. Not only was Jesus committed to the practice of prayer, but I would submit to you that he chose a place of prayer. Note again what Luke says in verse 39. And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, Jesus often retreated to the Garden of Gethsemane for the purpose of rest, refreshment. When you think about prayer and all the great blessings afforded us through prayer, isn't it the case that it enables us to communicate with God? For example, as we look at this text, Jesus went to a specific place for communication, to communicate with God, didn't he? All of us need a special place. Now, we can pray anywhere. But sometimes it's good to have a place where you can go and be all alone, bow your head to the Father, and pray. Open up your heart to God, to communicate with the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. And think about this for a minute. We live in a world that is comprised of about 7 billion people. And yet the Bible tells us that there is a God in heaven who willingly listens to every single syllable that we utter before him. That's amazing, isn't it? To think that we have direct communication with God the Father. That we can bow in His presence anywhere, at any time, day or night, and God hears us. You remember Solomon said many, many years ago, the prayer of the upright is His delight. To know that there is a God in heaven who listens attentively, who wants us to pray to Him, to communicate with Him. And so here's Jesus. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the weight of the cross is literally upon his shoulders. 
Sometimes we talk about having the weight of the world on our shoulders. Well, Jesus truly had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And Jesus is bowing in the presence of God the Father, communicating unto him about this hour of trial that's to come upon him. Jesus had come to earth for a very specific purpose, and now the hour had come. And so Jesus is fully mindful that this hour has come, and so now he prays to the Father. So he found a place for communication, also a place of anticipation. Notice, if you would, what is said in verse 41. Jesus was withdrawn from the disciples, that is Peter, James, and John, about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Now let me just pause there for a minute. Jesus has come to earth for the purpose of dying for the sins of the human family. Luke tells us that he began his public ministry at the age of about 30. We read about his birth, and then after the first couple of years of his life, nothing is said in Scripture until Jesus reaches the age of 12. At the age of 12, we find him sitting in the temple, conversing with those leaders, religious leaders. And the Bible says that Jesus was growing in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. For 18 years, the record is silent. And then Jesus begins his public ministry. His public ministry takes off not far or not long after John the Baptist begins his public ministry. And their message was the same, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For three years, Jesus is preaching and teaching, identifying himself as the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. Over and over again, he teaches all of these marvelous messages. And then add to that the miracles that authenticated his claims of deity. That three-year period of time is now coming to a close. Jesus is now at the hour of trial. His time on earth is going to be very short. He is anticipating the cross and everything that would accompany the cross. Do you pray in anticipation of the week before you? Do you arm yourself with prayer before every day? Isn't it good sometimes to anticipate good times and bad times, highs and lows, joys and successes? How strong is your faith? You need to anticipate trouble in life, don't you? You need to anticipate trials in life. You need to, you need to anticipate temptations in life. Why? Because that's what life is all about. Sometimes we fail to anticipate what's coming down the pike. And so we're not ready. And sadly, sometimes when difficult times come, they throw a curve at us. And we're not able to bear up under the hour of trial. So here's Jesus. 
in communication with the Father in anticipation of the cross. Jesus knew what he was, what he was about to do. He fully understood the magnitude of the cross, the hour of trial that had come upon him. And so there is this place of communication. It was a place of anticipation. And I would suggest it was a place of fortification. I would add to that a place of preparation. Jesus is preparing himself. He is fortifying himself for what's to come. Are you ready for what's to come in your life? Do you anticipate the things that can happen in life? You remember Job in Job chapter 2? said, the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me. What Job was saying there is simply this. My deepest, darkest fears were realized when I lost my health, my wealth, and my family members. Who's to say that we might not face similar tragedy in life in the coming year? So the question is, are you ready? Are you armed and ready for that? Jesus is preparing his mind for the cross. He's about to go to Golgotha and suffer the death of the cruel cross of Calvary. For whom? For every soul. The Hebrew writer said he would taste of death for every man. And so here's Jesus committed to prayer. And look at as we live the Christian life, we need to be committed to prayer, don't we? We need to commit our lives to praying on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, Paul said, pray without ceasing. Colossians 4 verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer ought to be as normal and natural in your life as eating and drinking every day. It ought to be that much a part of who you are. It ought to be in your DNA. Now there's a second thing I want you to see in our study. Not only was Jesus committed to prayer, but he was in conflict in prayer. Listen again to what is said. Verse 42. Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Now look at verse 44. Luke said, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Matthew, in his account of this, in Matthew chapter 26 and verses 36 through 46, says that Jesus began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. In other words, Jesus is in agony here. He is wrestling with the thoughts of the cross and what, it, what lay before him. Let me just submit to you tonight some of the reasons why I believe he was in agony. He was in agony over the suffering that he would face on the cross. Do you remember the apostle Peter said that Christ also suffered for us? 
leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Peter said he bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we being dead unto sin might live unto righteousness. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter said, Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, in chapter 3, verse 18. Now you can go back and read Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account, John's account, and they all harmonize. They supplement one another. And each of these writers gives us a very vivid picture of the trial, the ill treatment that he faced, the scourge, and then crucifixion at Golgotha. Jesus, Jesus faced agony in Gethsemane. He agonized because of the suffering that lay before him. He agonized over the shame of the cross. We talk about the suffering of the cross. What about the shame of the cross? Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, that Christ has been made a curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a cross or on a tree. Those who were crucified were, as history will bear out, the baddest of the bad, thieves, murderers, insurrectionists. Now, let me just ask you to think about something for a moment. What did Jesus do to suffer the shame of the cross? We talk about his suffering and the shame. Isn't it interesting that in the world today, in our country today, that we have serial killers? Individuals who have been, individuals who have been tried and convicted in a court of law, sentenced to death, many of whom are on death's row, and they talk about their rights as a criminal, and how they shouldn't die inhumanely. Well, Jesus was the sinless son of God. And you look at the ill treatment that he faced during his trial and the cross. Did he deserve that? No, he did not. Jesus was treated as a common criminal. And so I think about the suffering of the cross, the shame of the cross, and then the separation. Matthew tells us in chapter 27 that while Jesus was dying on the cross, he cried out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's my conviction that the worst part of the crucifixion and death of Jesus was the fact that for the first time, the father and son were separated because of the sins of the human family. Jesus vicariously suffered, bled, and died. In other words, he took our place, didn't he? He was our substitute. Jesus went to the cross for my sins and for your sins. 
And as Paul said, him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus died. Matter of fact, we talk about the good news. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about the gospel, the good news. What's that good news? That Christ died according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised again from the dead three days later. Just as the prophets had foretold of old. Now there's a second thing I want you to see. We talk about his agony in Gethsemane. But what about his attitude in Gethsemane? Jesus is praying. He's in distress. He's troubled. And listen to his request. Father, if it is your will, remove this cup from me. Jesus was saying to the Father, look, if there's any other way that your will can be accomplished then please let that come to pass. Again, reminding us of his suffering, shame, separation. Don't you find it interesting in Hebrews chapter 12? The writer talks about Jesus going to the cross, enduring the cross, despising the shame. Jesus went to the cross with joy. For what purpose? For the purpose of redeeming us, saving us from sin, snatching us out of the gates of hell. So Jesus makes a request of the Father. If there's any other way, let, let me just pause here. Do we understand the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was the Son of Man, but the Son of God, wasn't he? John said the Word became flesh. In other words, the one who existed throughout all of eternity, as Paul said, emptied himself and came in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. So Jesus is facing the ordeal of the cross. And he's going to die for the sins of the human family. And there's this internal struggle going on. The weight of the cross, as we say. The weight of the world. Resting upon his shoulders. And he is praying to God the Father. Pouring out his soul. If you want some insight into the mentality of Jesus... I'd invite you to look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. There the writer said, Who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him who was able to save him from death. That's Jesus. And he is praying unto God the Father. And he is praying. And as Luke says, he's in agony. As Matthew says, he is sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he is wrestling with the weight of the cross. And the human side of him is evidenced here. And so as Jesus prays to the Father, his desire is, if there's any other way that your will can be accomplished and mankind 
can be saved, then please let that come to fruition. But notice if you would. We have his request, but note the relinquishment of his will. Father, if it's your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The backdrop of the cross, when it's all said and done, the desire of Jesus to be submissive to the will of the Father. Everything in his realm of existence was about pleasing the Father, accomplishing his will. That's why when he began his ministry, he's focused on the task at hand. As a matter of fact, look at, look at John chapter 4, where he said, My work is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. In John 6, 38, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In John chapter 17, verse 4, he said, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work you've given me to do. Jesus came with a heaven-sent mission, didn't he? Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to give his life a ransom for the many. So here's Jesus wrestling with the weight of the cross and making a simple request of the Father. But in light of that request, relinquishing his will. You know, sometimes when we pray, we want our will to take precedence, don't we? I think one of the most difficult things to pray is, let your will be done, God. Whatever you think is best, whatever is in accordance with your will, then let that come to pass. So Jesus is praying to the Father in this difficult hour of trial. Third thing I want you to see. Jesus was confident in prayer. Are you confident in your prayer life? Do you believe in the power of prayer? Do you believe that what James wrote is true? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. you believe that? Do you? Jesus was confident in his prayer life. Now you ask the question, how do you know? Well, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, the Bible says he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him who was able to save him from death. And the Bible says, and he was heard in that he feared. Did you know when you bow your head to the Father and you lift up your prayers to him that God hears those prayers? There is not a prayer that you utter that God the Father doesn't know about. God is in tune with every prayer that you offer Him. Aren't there times in life when we go to the Father and we, like Jesus, maybe not to the same magnitude, but we're struggling and we're in distress and we're agonizing over a situation, a circumstance in life. And this situation or circumstance in life is weighing heavily upon us. And so we're praying fervently to God. But when we pray, do we recognize that those prayers are being heard? 
And that there's a God in heaven who not only hears our prayers, but handles them. God has the ability to handle every prayer that you utter. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 4, that we ought to draw boldly under the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So you need to understand that there is power in prayer. We ought to be confident. So listen, if you would, to what Luke says in verse 45. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Now note, if you would, his reminder to the saints. First he asked the question, why do you sleep? And then he said, rise and pray. Why? Lest you enter into temptation. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying there is tremendous power in prayer, isn't there? He's saying that we ought to arm ourselves with prayer. Why? So that we can rise above and be victorious in times of trial and temptation. Peter, James, and John, they've accompanied him to Gethsemane. And here is the Son of God praying to the Father. And what are they doing? They're sleeping. Wasn't it Peter that boasted about his allegiance to the Lord? That no matter what would happen, he would stand by him, even if it cost him his life. Isn't that, isn't that right? And yet... Peter and the other apostles, when push came to shove, they scattered like a covey of quail. The Bible says they all forsook him and fled. And what Jesus is saying here is, look, you need to remember there is tremendous power in prayer. The passage I read just a moment ago, James chapter 5, verse 16, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? It avails much. And Jesus is telling the disciples, here's what you need to do. You need to rise up and you need to pray. Isn't that, good? Isn't that good advice for us today? Don't you think we ought to begin every day praying to God? Is it not the case we ought to conclude every single day with prayer? Thank God for another day of life. Thank Him for a blessed day. For our health, our wealth, our happiness, for all the great blessings we enjoy, materially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, shouldn't we pray to God and say, thank you, Lord? Shouldn't we pray to God to give us the strength and the wisdom to rise above temptation, to overcome trial, to be victorious over the evil one? The answer is yes. But now note, if you would, the resolve of the Savior. When Jesus left the garden, could I suggest to you that he left focused on the task at hand? Now I want you to see something. Turn back to Matthew's account for a moment. Look at Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26 in verse 45, Matthew said that after Jesus had prayed three times to the Father, about the cross, he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So Jesus says, Rise, let us be going. See, he who betrays me 
is at hand. So Jesus is resolved. He is resolved and focused on the task at hand. In verse 47, the Bible says, While he's still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords, clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. And you, remember, and you remember the text tells us that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He has armed himself with prayer. And he is ready to meet the forces of hell as he goes to the cross. He is focused and he is faithful to the task at hand. So with that in mind, look at what is said. Verse 50, Jesus said to Judas, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly, suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, that would be Peter, stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now look at verse 53. Do you not think that I can now pray to my father? And he will provide me with 12 legions of angels. A legion would have consisted of about five to 6,000 troops. Talk about a Roman battalion. What Jesus is saying here is, look, I could have at my disposal 60 to 72,000 angels right now. But that's not the will of God. The will of God is that I go to the cross and die for the sins of the human family. The Lord Jesus was not going to let anything keep him from fulfilling the will of God. So he is focused on the task at hand and he is faithful to the task at hand. So as you read the narrative, Jesus is apprehended. He is tried on charges that are basically trumped up and then later crucified on Calvary, only to rise from the dead three days later. So as you look at Gethsemane, you see the Son of God battling, battling over the way to the cross. And what I want to close with tonight is this. As Jesus prayed in the garden to make this very personal, he had you in mind. Matter of fact, he had all of us in mind. Because Jesus understood that unless, unless he went to Calvary and fulfilled the will of the Father, mankind would be forever lost. And so Jesus drank the bitter cup of Calvary, suffered, bled, and died for each and every one of us. As the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, he tasted death for every man. That's all of us. So the question is, if he died for us, will we not live for him? Shouldn't we be willing to live for him? He gave everything so that we might gain everything. 
As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, though he were rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. We're rich today because Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, could we encourage you to come to Christ? What would you need to do to become a New Testament Christian? Well, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus, of course, said, except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. The Lord Jesus would say, you need to repent, Luke 13, 3. Jesus talked about confessing Him before others in Matthew 10, verses 32 and following. And then to be baptized into Christ so that you might be saved, Mark 16, 16. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you. The assurance is that God will abundantly pardon every sin, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. So tonight, if you need to respond to the invitation, we encourage you to do so as we stand and sing.